We're going to be in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. The sermon will only take about 75 minutes, so we'll be done plenty of we've done plenty of time. Let me. Uh, this is a famous passage. It concerns disputes about what do you have to do to become a Christian. What exactly do you have to do to become a Christian? Is it Jesus, believe in Jesus, or is it Jesus plus something else? So let me start with a benign example that's more down to earth that might connect well. Um, This is especially an important question for Baptists who've been to different Baptist churches. Do you have to be baptized in order to take the Lord's Supper? Do you have to be baptized in order to take the Lord's Supper? Many Baptist churches say, yes, you have to be baptized in order to take the Lord's Supper. You notice that I've never said anything like that when when I do the Lord's Supper. I don't remember Pastor Paul saying anything like that uh, when he uh, uh, administered the Lord's Supper. But in many good uh, conservative Baptist seminaries and Bible colleges, they teach their young ministers in training that you must be, people have to be baptized or they cannot take the Lord's Supper. You you don't physically stop them saying, wait, go away, but you just make it clear this is for people who are baptized and who are uh, Christians. And so people who aren't get the message and they just don't come to take the Lord's Supper. But is that actually true? Is it actually true? Did Jesus ever say in, in Matthew and in Luke and in Mark, and when Paul repeated it in 1 Corinthians, is there anything where Jesus says, um, this is for the member. This is for the people who are part of the new covenant in my blood and who have been baptized. Does he ever say that? Does Jesus ever say baptism is necessary to take the Lord's Supper? No. Did Paul ever say it in 1 Corinthians 11? Did he ever cur- criticize them because they weren't baptized? No. Did the book of Acts ever say you have to be baptized in order to take the Lord's Supper? No. So why do people believe it? They believe it because it's based on a series of inferences. Christians are supposed to be baptized. All the Christians we see in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, are baptized. And Christians in the book of Acts take the Lord's Supper. Therefore, they all must be baptized. So therefore, you must be baptized in order to take the Lord's Supper, which sounds really nice, but the only problem is that Jesus never said that. And so the argument is, well, if you don't make baptism a prerequisite for the Lord's Supper, people will never get baptized. And I say, if you're not baptized, you should get baptized. That's what Christians need to do. There, problem solved. The problem is, the scripture doesn't say you have to be baptized. So what's happened? Out of, in this case, out of good motives, you're putting up roadblocks to, you're putting up roadblocks that God didn't actually make. God didn't say you you had to be baptized to take the Lord's Supper. If you're a member of the New Covenant in Christ's blood, you can take the Lord's Supper. And hopefully that means you've been baptized, but that's not an equation there. So when you end up doing things like that, well-meaning things, we want to make sure baptism is special. People need to be baptized, and so we just will make it so they have to be baptized to take the Lord's Supper. But you're, you're walling people off from Christ which is not a good thing. How did that happen? Tradition. Tradition is what made it happen. So this error, erecting fake roadblocks between people and Christ, sometimes for really good motives, is probably the worst thing that Christians can do. If it's 
If you do it to believers, you're spiritually starving them and restricting them from things that the scripture doesn't actually tell you to restrict them from. You're putting up obstacles that don't exist that God didn't put in place. So for a believer, that, that could be detrimental. But for an unbeliever, to put up roadblocks between an unbeliever and Christ, that's the worst thing you could do. Because you're actually giving them a ticket, not to Jesus, but a ticket potentially to hell, because they end up believing that Jesus plus something else equals salvation. So this mistake of putting up roadblocks that don't exist in different forms, it can happen, it has happened, and it is happening now in a million different ways in tens of thousands of churches across the entire world. How can we make sure that that isn't us? How can we make sure that we don't do that? We're going to be in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 35, and we're going to see this exact question play out in the early church. And we'll see what they do, and that'll tell us how we can make sure we're not making the same mistake. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. As I said, the sermon will take 72 minutes now, and it will go in three stages. We're going to see a problem in Antioch, way up north, that's going to lead the church there to send Paul and Barnabas to go to Jerusalem to initiate a discussion about what the church, what do we believe about, about this? And then we're going to see a decision that is made, that is emailed to all the churches around Antioch. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to hear your word. Help us to know it. Help us to want to do it. Lead us to want to always conform our practices and habits and way of thinking and our actions to your word and not to traditions, no matter how way. Amen. We start off in verse 1. We read this. Some people came down from, from Judea teaching the family of believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom we've received from Moses, you cannot be saved. There it is. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Period. End of discussion. There it is. There are at least three things that are wrong here. And they're all bound up together, and it's hard to un untangle them. It's like a cord that's all, they're all intertwined, and it's just a mess. But if you, if you unstrand them, you have three things going on here that are wrong. And they're all related to each other. So I'll lay them out quickly, and then we'll, just, we'll go through the passage. The passage really isn't that hard, but it's these three things that are, that are the problem. Number one, they have a wrong idea about how to have a relationship with God. That's what these people who came down from the Jerusalem churches are going everywhere and teaching this. And they come from Jerusalem, so they have some sort of like implied authority because they come from the mother church. And they're teaching all of this, and there's chaos. People are confused. So the first thing is they're wrong about how to have a relationship with God. Um, the truth is that circumcision is just an outward sign of an inward allegiance. It's not the thing itself. That's not the most important thing in and of itself. Having a relationship with God is about love, loving God with all your heart and soul and mind, and pledging allegiance to God through Jesus. It's not about being circumcised. It's like saying, baptism, Get you, be baptized or you can't be saved. You're like, well, that's, you're sort of flipping things around. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Baptism is an outward sign that you belong to Jesus. It, it doesn't make the relationship. It shows the relationship exists. So there's 
a wrong idea about what it means to have a relationship with God. Number two, there's a wrong idea about how to worship God, where they think you just do this thing, check the box on your, on your chart, and everything's fine. You just get circumcised, and then everything's going to be great. You just get baptized, and everything will be great. If you do that, then everything's fine. But Jesus has vaporized all those old, all those old rituals of worship. In the book of Hebrews, he calls, they're called a, a copy, a shadow, a parable. All those rituals about worship, they're all a parable in Hebrews 9, 9. A parable to show what Jesus would fix for us. The book Hebrews chapter 8 says that all those rituals are old and outdated. Worship isn't tied to a specific place anymore. We don't all have to go to Jerusalem. You can go to church here. If you move somewhere else, you can go to church there. Worship isn't tied to Jerusalem anymore or to these highly specific, really, really minute rituals whose purpose as an object lesson to show us Jesus has been fulfilled now. But they think that you worship God by checking the right box in your rituals and then everything's fine. Unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. The third thing is they're wrong about salvation. Rules as a condition, if you make rules a condition for salvation, you're, you're going to hell and you're sending other people to hell. You can't be saved unless you do this. You follow these rules, then you can be saved. <clears throat> that's a ticket to send someone to hell, because that's not the gospel that Jesus came to bring. Transformed behavior follows salvation. It doesn't come before it. Why should this matter to you? Because these things all still happen today in different forms, sometimes by really well-meaning people. They still happen today. For example, number one, unless you undergo Christian baptism, you cannot be saved. The churches of Christ teach that. Unless you are baptized, you cannot be a Christian. What would you say if someone taught you that or someone tried to teach you that? This error still exists today wrong idea about how to have a relationship with God. Number two, I have sat in, in a doctoral class with a worship professor who believed that if anyone raises their hands or shows emotion during worship, that they've stopped worshiping God and they're worshiping an experience and they're in sin. He believed it. I mean, he absolutely believed it. He's a, wor like a, he's, he's a, he's a worship fundamentalist. It was a great class, but there's some weird things that um, that were made me raise two eyebrows, not just one. So if you raise your hands during worship, you are worshiping yourself and your emotions. It's ritual over heart. He, he wants to make sure you do the right things and look the right way and don't do things that don't, don't, don't do things you don't see in scripture. He said, you, don't, you, never, you never see anyone in scripture raising their hands when you worship. And so during class, I, I responded and said, well, you don't see anyone in scripture using the bathroom either. I guess they didn't do it. And then I told that to my son, and he said, that's not true, because Saul was relieving himself in a cave, and David was hiding. And I said, just be quiet. It doesn't matter. But the point is, it's, it's worshiping God becomes a ritual. There's no heart. It just becomes this, this cold, cold ritual. And he showed us, he showed, show, he showed us um, videos of, his, of, the, of the church where he's the worship pastor, and it's very cold, very stiff, very formal, because it's, there's a heavy emphasis on looking the right way and checking the right boxes. Don't raise your hands during worship. 
very sober. So it's like a pure, it's like cold. It's like you walk in, it's like, it's like, the, it's like you watch the YouTube video and your screen gets ice crystals on it sort of thing. Very cold. Another student actually said that to him. Um, the last thing is wrong about salvation, putting rules and saying, if you fix yourself, then Jesus will take you. Get out of your lesbian relationship, and then Jesus will accept you. Is that the right, is that the right order? Is it the right order? Do you fix yourself, then come to Jesus? Fix yourself, clean yourself up, and then Jesus will accept you. Or is it the other way? You accept Jesus, and then he'll fix you. Which one? Which, which order is here? These guys, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. What about Jesus? Where's Jesus? He doesn't appear to be there. He doesn't appear to be there. So these guys come to Antioch. What do Paul and Barnabas think about this? Paul and Barnabas, in verse 2, took sides against these Judeans and argued strongly against their position, or they had no small dispute with them. This is a very contentious argument. The church at Antioch appointed Paul and Barnabas and several others from Antioch to go up to Jerusalem to set this question before the apostles and elders. They said, I want you, they said, you guys, I want you guys to go to Jerusalem. I want you to initiate a discussion, and I want, we want answers on this. Because Paul and Barnabas are saying, you guys are out to lunch. That is wrong. They strongly disagree. And the guys from Jerusalem are saying, no, you're wrong. And so the church from Antioch says, we need to call a meeting, and we need to get together. We want to know what the guys in Jerusalem really think about this. And so off they go. Now we have the Jerusalem showdown itself, starting in verses 3 through 5. The church sent this delegation on their way. They traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, so they're along the coast and through Samaria, telling stories about the conversion of the Gentiles to everyone. Their reports thrilled the brothers and sisters when they arrived in Jerusalem. The church, the apostles, and the elders all welcomed them. They gave a full report of what God had accomplished through their activity. This Phoenicia and Samaria, Philip and uh, Peter have already evangelized that area, have established churches there. We saw that in Acts 8. We saw it in Acts 11. And so Paul and Barnabas are almost on a public relations tour as they're heading to Jerusalem, telling everyone, sort of getting everyone on their side, like God does care about people who aren't Jewish. He saves those people. He rescues those people. And they get to Jerusalem, and the whole church is gathered, the elders, the apostles, and the whole church. They're all listening to the problem. We have a problem. Some guys from your church have come down. They're teaching this nonsense. Is it right or not? What's the deal here? And they gave a full report in Antioch, the most multicultural church ever. You have people from Africa. You have people from Cyprus. You have people from all over the place, and some of them, most of them aren't even Jewish. So Paul's like, God does care about non-Jewish people. So we got a problem here. What, is, what did Jesus teach here? Let's all come to an agreement and hash this out. How do you think the hardline faction in the Jerusalem church reacted? Good or bad? Were they like, you're right, we've searched the scriptures and we think this is correct. Did they say that? Verse 5. Some believers from among the Pharisees, these are believers, that's very important, these are believers, stood up and claimed the Gentiles must be circumcised. They must be required or ordered to keep the law from Moses. So basically, 
they ain't having it. Very angry. Have you ever been in a church business meeting? If you're a Baptist, you've no doubt experienced this. Have you ever been in a church business meeting that's really contentious and is clearly just going south very, very fast? We had one of those about a year ago in this church, and some of you may have experienced that at, at other churches. This is a church meeting that's just gone south. I mean, everyone's together. The whole church, Paul and Barnabas say, God loves people who aren't Jewish, and he doesn't want to put barriers there that don't exist, and we see it everywhere. And then people stand up and say, no, they must be circumcised. And then there's this silence, and they're like, okay, well, I guess, I guess, uh, I guess it's time to go into executive session and sit down at a table and put our pitchforks away and talk to each other, because obviously this, this needs a bigger discussion, right? A bigger discussion. So what about you? Do you, do you fall into some of the traps we see here? Are you wrong about, what your, about your relationship with God, about how to have a relationship with God? Are you wrong about what God wants from you in worship? Are you wrong about what salvation means? Are you willing to listen to the scripture and weigh your tradition and your scripture and set tradition aside if it doesn't match what the scripture says? These guys are very angry. There's a tone of righteous indignation that sort of oozes off the page or off your screen. They are very upset. They're indignant. They stand up after Paul and Barnabas give their report and they say, no, 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 no. They must be ordered, required to keep the law of Moses. Christians have a very, very hard time distinguishing between personal preference and thus says the Lord always have had a really hard time because there is nothing worse than a Christian who is convinced the Bible is on her side. There is no nastier person than a person with a bad disposition who is convinced the scripture is on her side or his side. Christians can be very rude that way. Behold these believers who actually say this. Verses 6 through 11, we go to executive session now. Now, the apostles and elders gather to consider the matter. The church is gone. They close the business meeting and bring out the potluck and everyone eats. And they all go home and the elders and the apostles are going to sit and are going to all hash this out together. After much debate, Peter stood up and addressed them. Fellow believers, you know that early on, God chose me from among you as the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and come to believe. God, who knows people's deepest thoughts and desires, confirmed this by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. So do you see what he's saying? He said, I have told you, and witnesses were with me in Cornelius' house, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon these Gentiles, just like happened to us at Pentecost, in a visible way. They spoke foreign languages immediately, just like we did at Pentecost. Peter said, you know that happened. So then, if you know it happened, you know that he made no distinction between us and them, but purified their deepest thoughts and desires through faith. So the question is, well then, what's your problem? What's your problem with these people? Why then are you now challenging God by placing a burden on the shoulders of these disciples that neither we nor our ancestors could bear? 
if Jesus, if you could become righteous by doing all the things of the law, then why did Jesus come? That's Galatians 2.21. If you could do a list of things and do them consistently well to make yourself righteous and be perfect, then why did Jesus have to come? Well, you can't. So he had to come to love God perfectly because you can't in your place and to die for your crimes in your place. He was perfect for you in your place. So then why are you trying to tell these Gentiles that they have to obey the, the law of Moses? Why? You know, we don't have to do that. We know about Jesus and grace, and we know that that wasn't what the Old Testament taught. We know that that had been twisted, and we left it behind, I thought. But you want to make the Gentiles, you want to just pile this load onto them that we couldn't bear. Why? On the contrary, we believe that we and they are saved in the same way by the grace of the Lord Jesus. The problem is the folks in, some of the folks in Jerusalem really don't like people who aren't Jews. And this is a constant problem with this church, which is why the church didn't explode from Jerusalem. It exploded from all the churches away from Jerusalem where that legalistic baggage didn't exist. The entire assembly fell silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God did among the Gentiles through their activity. This is the only time Barnabas and Paul speak. They seem to be junior partners at this meeting. Peter and James seem to be the ones who are leading this meeting. Barnabas and Paul are just guests who make a short presentation. When Barnabas and Paul also fell silent, James responded. Peter speaks, Paul and Barnabas speak, now we have James. So listen very carefully to what he says. Fellow believers, listen to me. Simon reported how, in his kindness, God came to the Gentiles in the first place to raise up from them a people of God. He said, you know God saves people who aren't Jews the same way they saved us, by believing in Jesus and what he did. You know it. it was, he told it to all of us years back when he came back from Caesarea. He says, the prophet's words agree with this as it is written. And then he quotes from Amos chapter 9. And this is what Amos chapter 9 says. Amos talks about God coming in chapter 9. God will come and he's going to restore Israel. He's going to fix everything. He's going to Eliminate all enemies in Israel. God's kingdom on earth will be restored. And after this, I will return, Amos says, and I will rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild what has been torn down. What does that mean? What does it mean? What do you guys think? What's it mean when he says, I will rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild what has been torn down. What is this David's fallen tent that's going to be rebuilt. What is it? Okay, the new world. What, what, what specifically? His, his kingdom. He's, he's going to fix Israel. Israel, God's kingdom, God's people. It's all been ruined. He says, well, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix David's tent. David's, the, the, the kingdom that David rules, used to rule over. I'm going to fix it all. I'm going to rebuild it. It's all you know, a pile of rubble now, but I'm going to fix it, God promises. I will restore it. Restore it for who? 
Restore it for who? Just people who are Jewish? Or for anyone who wants to come to worship God, whether they're Ethiopian, American, Canadian, or from Turkmenistan? Which one? Just Jews or anyone who wants to come, including Jews? I will restore it so that the rest of humanity will seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who belong to me. What does that mean? What is James saying? James says, listen, guys, Peter has told us that God saves people who aren't Jews. The same way. You believe in Jesus, you're saved. You have faith, trust in Jesus and his promise to rescue you, then you're saved. We don't need to do things. We don't need to do Jesus plus something. And then James says, you know, this is exactly this thing about Gentiles, how non-Jewish people can become believers. He's, James says, Amos talked about this. Amos said that God's going to return. He's going he's to rebuild this kingdom. And he has a whole bunch of non-Jewish people who are going to be part of it. And James says, that's what's happening right here. That's what's happening right here. The Lord says this, the one who does these things, known from the earliest times. That's what James is saying. James is saying, you know, I think God is rebuilding his family so that Jesus can come back and establish his kingdom just like he promised. And that kingdom includes people who aren't Jewish. If, are, are it, if any of you sitting here are not Jewish, this promise, James says, is being fulfilled in you. So James says, therefore, I conclude that we shouldn't create problems for Gentiles who turn to God. James is like, I think you guys are wrong. I think you guys are wrong. Peter said it, now James says it. What does James do? This is where we think, well, what's this have to do with me? What James did is he faced a problem. They have to be ordered to keep Moses' law in order to be saved. He looked at the problem, he searched the scripture, and then he did what scripture said and threw tradition in the trash. That's what he did. What does the Bible say? I don't care what Baptists believe. I don't care what Presbyterians believe. I care what the Bible believes. And of course, Baptists always believe what the Bible believes because we're the only true denomination. That's a joke. That's a joke. The point is, are you willing to take your tradition and throw it away if it conflicts with what the Bible says? James has a tradition of perverting the Old Testament and saying that you have a relationship with God by doing a checklist of rules and God hates Gentiles. He's become a Christian and he looks at this problem and he's like, you know what? No. No, no, no. That's wrong. Therefore, I conclude we shouldn't create problems for Gentiles who turn to God. Some of the Christians in the church didn't seem to understand that and they're going around teaching everyone this nonsense. Peter had the same problem a little bit in Galatians chapter 2. Are you willing to bring this to today? Are you, as you sit here listening to me, are you willing, are we willing to look at our value church traditions and customs and habits that have been passed down that we use and find helpful and then compare them to scripture? And then are we willing to toss the traditions in the garbage when they don't match scripture? Yes or no? If you're a Christian, you're probably thinking, of course, of course. But sometimes that's a lie for all of us. And you know it because if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've been at a church where people have gotten angry and have left 
for reasons that have nothing to do with the Bible, even though they say it has to do with the Bible. And you know it because you've seen it. Maybe you've done it, but you've seen it. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We all say, of course, Scripture is the only infallible rule we have, and everything goes back to Scripture, but then you've seen people do the exact opposite. But then they use Scripture to justify their personal preferences. Even as they, even as they value tradition more than anything else, they still want to bring Scripture in to allegedly support their position. Sometimes... This can stunt your growth if you're a Christian, unnecessarily. But other times, when you're talking about unbelievers, you're putting up a fake wall between them and between the God who can save them. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, if that's you, if that's what you do, then Peter says, that person who preaches this false gospel should be damned to hell, should be anathema, should be cursed by God. Paul sees that as the most serious, serious thing you could ever do to put roadblocks between people and between God that don't exist. doesn't matter how good your motives are. So James has finished with this. And the party that wants to be hardline and make people obey Moses' law, they're sort of, they're outnumbered. They're outnumbered. A vocal minority. But don't underestimate a vocal minority. That's, uh, they are powerful. But in this case, they have lost. So what does James suggest that they do? Verses 20 to 21, instead, we should send them a letter, write them a letter, telling them to avoid the pollution associated with idols, sexual immorality, eating meat from strangled animals, and consuming blood. He throws out four things. He says, you know, let's, uh, for the sake of peace with the Jews who they're going to be interacting with, you don't have to follow the law, certainly not for salvation or anything else, but these few things you should make sure you keep doing. Specifically, don't associate with food that was offered to idols and sold in a market, and don't eat meat from strangled animals, and don't consume raw meat, which are Jewish laws and aren't in effect anymore, but for the sake of sensitive Jewish people who would get angry if they went away, that James and the others recommend that Gentiles still do this around Jewish brothers and sisters just to keep, just to keep peace. But they're going to write a letter so everyone knows those guys who were going around, they're wrong. It's just Jesus. Believe in Jesus, you're a member of the family. Period. End of discussion. Now we get to the letter that they send out. I'm not going to read the whole letter for sake of time. You can read it yourself in verses, uh, verses 22 to 28. I'll mention a section or two. The apostles and the elders, along with the entire church, agreed to send some delegates chosen from among themselves to Antioch, together with Paul and Barnabas. They can't just email a letter. They have to send it with an emissary. Okay? Email's not working. Outlook is not responding. So they have to send people carrying the letter so they can distribute it to everyone. And they can't just send Paul and Barnabas because they come from Antioch, so they're sending people from their own church as sort of representatives. They selected Judas, Barsabbas, and Silas, who you know accompanies Paul all over the place soon, who were leaders among the brothers and sisters. They were to carry this letter. And then the text of the letter comes, and it says the same thing that James says. But it says this, in the intro, we've heard that some of our number have disturbed you with unsettling words we didn't authorize. 
That's very important. He's saying all that stuff that they were, they were going around teaching, that's wrong. It's a lie. We never told them to say that. They're off the reservation. The only way, the only way to be a Christian is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And he wants them to know that. When Barnabas and Paul and the delegates were sent on their way, they went down to Antioch, they gathered the believers and delivered the letter. The people read it, delighted with its encouraging message. Isn't it delightful to know that there are no fake roadblocks between you and between Jesus? Whoever you are, you can repent of your sins and turn to Jesus for forgiveness right now, today, without cleaning yourself up first, without following a bunch of rules, without navigating this serpentine roadblock that doesn't need to exist. You, whoever you are, whatever you've done, you can join Jesus' family today if you repent and believe in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. That's why they're delighted with its encouraging message. Because those roadblocks that were going up have been swept away. Judas and Silas were prophets, and they said many things that encouraged and strengthened the brothers and sisters. They're teaching them. They're explaining why this is true. They're explaining more about Jesus. They're, they're doing this dedicated teaching ministry going all over to fix, to fix the confusion in all these churches that these unauthorized teachers have, have wrought. Judas and Silas stayed there a while, then were sent back with a blessing of peace from the brothers and sisters to those who first sent them. Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, where together with many others, they taught and proclaimed the good news of the Lord's word. The problem is over. But these three things still are a problem today in different forms and different flavors. Wrong ideas about how to have a relationship with God. Outward action does not establish a relationship. Going to church does not establish a relationship. Reading your Bible every day does not establish a relationship with God. That is a lie. Love for God through repentance and faith in Jesus is the only way to establish a relationship with God. Anything else is wrong. But this problem still exists in various forms today. Wrong about worship. The idea that you can just look the right way, do the right external things, follow the checklist, and then be accepted by God is untrue. It's a lie. Relationship with God through Jesus is not based on whether you follow detailed liturgical rules the right way. If you raise your hands in church during singing, it's okay. I'm a very stiff person, so I won't do that. But you can do it, and that's okay. Can any of you picture me raising my hands in worship? Probably, maybe not. You know, this, that's just not me, but it could be you, and that's okay. Wrong about salvation. Where is Jesus and what those people said from the Jerusalem church? Where Jesus was nowhere, and yet they're believers. But their culture had influenced them so much, they did believe in Jesus. But he's in the, he's in the back doing something. He's busy in the back room. What's out in the front room? following Moses' law as a condition of salvation. Sal is this equation correct? Salvation equals repentance and belief in Jesus plus anything else. Is that salvation correct? Is that equation correct? That equation is wrong. Jesus, repentance and faith in Jesus. There is nothing else to add to it. 
for salvation. There is nothing else. But that equation is always really, really seductive because it makes us think we're guarding the gospel when we're actually putting up roadblocks to stop people from getting to it. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus follow these rules. Jesus plus whatever. There is no Jesus plus whatever. There's simply repentance and faith in Jesus, who he is, what he's done. So what's God's lesson for us in practical terms? What are you supposed to do with this? Be sure that what you do and what we do and believe is based on Scripture. That's it. Scripture. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? I don't care how well-intentioned your roadblock is. I don't care how great an idea it is. I don't care... I don't care that if you make people be baptized in order to take the Lord's Supper, that more people will be baptized and they'll be obeying God. I do not care, because that's not what Jesus said. He said it's for people who are part of the New Covenant. You can be part of the New Covenant before you're baptized. What does the Bible say? And make sure that it's not just you off the reservation that believes this. Make sure you're in community with other people so you can balance one another out. This talk would never have happened, this letter would never have been written if Christians hadn't gotten together to hash this out as a family, as a community. The only way you can get so far off track to believe what this faction in Jerusalem believed is if you stop taking Scripture seriously. James saw a problem, looked at scripture, found Amos, and changed. The opponents use scripture too. They quote scripture that says you have to be circumcised, but they didn't interpret scripture. They just used it for their own purposes. They took it, they twisted it, and they served it up as justification for what they really wanted to do in the first place, which is what we can do too. It might just look different. Scripture is the only infallible guide for faith and practice. God gave us scripture because we're tempted to do things like this all the time. We should always be reforming our habits, our practices and beliefs, so they're more and more like scripture and less and less like our own ideas, even if they're allegedly good ideas. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to search our hearts, search our habits, search our lives, and help us to want to make our church and our lives, our faith, look more like Scripture and less like our own ideas. Please forgive us for our sins. Convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Help us to never put roadblocks between people and between you. And help us to figure out when we're doing it so we can reform ourselves and fix it, just like James and Peter taught us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.